Welcome to Christ, Culture, and College, where we're on a journey to discuss the intersection of these three domains. That's Christ, Culture, and College. Hey everyone, welcome to Christ, Culture, College. Is that the right order? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we actually have a guest speaker on that we're going to be interviewing today. His name is Ben Shaka. He serves as the Executive Director of Restoration Academy in Fairfield, Alabama. Restoration has been seeking to provide a quality and Christ-centered education to urban youth in Birmingham for the last 28 years. Ben is also the author of Meals for Mars, which Matt actually yeah, read recently. Yeah. Um, it's on my Goodreads account. Yeah. <laughs> um, ben received his BA in history from Wheaton College and his master's in educational leadership from Covenant College in Chattanooga. Ben has served at Restoration Academy for over 17 years. He and his wife, Sarah, and their four children live in the neighborhood where he serves. His Twitter handle is I am Judah Ben, and I do follow him and I enjoy yeah. his tweets, so I would suggest it if you're yeah. on the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, Ben. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, so recently in the past year, you wrote a book. It's just over a year now. You released a book called Meals from Mars, and it's a book that I really loved, a book that I couldn't put down. It's about two men, um, a young black teenager who lives in the inner city and a wealthy white man from the suburbs who are forced to be together and deal with their prejudice and, and the social challenges in both of their lives. And I really loved it. Would you tell me a little bit about how you got the idea for the book and what you were hoping would come from it? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been, uh, you know, laboring and ministering at a at an urban Christian school here in Birmingham for 18 years, and it's just a really, really unique space. Um, my wife and I and our four children, we live in, in the neighborhood, and so we have just been around a lot of diversity. Birmingham is predominantly a black-white city, and um, we are separated by what's called the Red Mountain. You know, it's actually just uh, more of a hill, but on one side it's predominantly white and middle class, and on the other side it's predominantly African-American and uh, lower-income families. But Restoration Academy is a really interesting place where the majority of our students are representative of uh, their African-American lower income, and the majority of our donor base are white and middle class affluent individuals and uh, the school. And um, over the last 18 years, there's just been a lot of great, wonderful things that have happened in ministry on both sides for racial reconciliation, for the cross pollinization of different lives. Um, but there's also been some struggle and some strain. Uh, I think the, the recent elections, um, presidential elections, have exposed a lot of that. Um, I think going back to 2016 with the uh, shooting of Mike Brown and then in the years following Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and others, I uh, was just really grieved um, by just the kind of the polarity that I saw, particularly in social media, between people that I really loved and respected and people I've been around, just varying opinions and disagreements that got really, really volatile. And like a lot of other people were very discouraged. And so... Uh, the book uh, was just really more some creative space through storytelling to try to imagine what it would be like if two people from kind of opposite sides of the sphere, so to speak, were forced to spend 24 hours together. What would they really talk about? What are some of those closet issues that 
individuals might feel comfortable talking about within their own peer groups and their own culture, but wouldn't ordinarily speak out about in mixed company. And so I wanted mm-hmm. to use that as kind of a springboard to, you know, not, to just get people talking and to uh, maybe unpack some things that I've kind of heard from, from either side of the equation regarding some of these issues. Hmm. That's great. I loved particularly how you wrote it in such a way that was obviously it's fiction and it's a story, uh, but but you were I was so able to easily relate to it. Like I could understand some of the perspectives that I hear from my predominantly white brothers and sisters in the communities that I grew up in, but then learning some of the perspectives um, of Malik, who's the young African American man in the story and just really wrestling with with his perspectives i i really loved how you did that how how did you feel the response to the book was uh i mean for those who have read it i mean i've I've been encouraged with two things um predominant things uh one is that individuals have said they had a hard time putting it down which is someone who writes fiction that's what you want to hear you want people to finish your book and do so at at a pretty good clip so they're not uh Casting it aside after four or five chapters, but the, the second thing, which I hope is accomplished, is from from my friends, African American or white, is that the book made them very uncomfortable in certain parts, and so mm-hmm. um, that was very. That's what I wanted to happen. I, I didn't want this to be kind of a book where we just pillow fight with some issues and kind of move on. Um, but but there's been a couple sections where you have to kind of stare off and and hopefully check some of your own paradigms, kind of rework, rethink. Um, some things that you may have already come to believe. And, um, you know, I did have a couple people said they did have to put it down for a minute because they were convicted about some stuff and need to mm. kind of marinate on it for a minute and then pick it back up. So those are the two, the two main things that I, that I've heard so far that have been very encouraging. Yeah, that's awesome. I think for me, one of the big things that, that I really wrestled with too, in it was that the book, I, I won't ruin it for people, but it's not, it's not really a happy ending. Right. And, and there's this this weightiness of dealing with the reality that um, there are privileges and different realities that different people have in America. And just wrestling with the reality of the privileges that Malik didn't have was really something that, that really kind of I had to wrestle with in my heart. Um, I just I love the book. I mean, I have highly recommended it to a lot of my peers that I've engaged in these conversations with. And I think you just do a really great job of weaving in really difficult um, topics and perspectives into a story that is cohesive and um, easy to read. Like I couldn't put it down. So thank you for, for doing that work. It was really a great work. Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm excited to get the chance to read it. And um, moving more towards Restoration Academy, could you tell us more about just how you got involved with that or like how that vision began in your life? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. I can give you the, it'd probably be worth just giving you the really quick cliff note of just the school's kind of origin story. And then I can give you okay. the, the backdrop of my involvement, but we're, the school's actually um, wrapping up its 30th year. So um, it was founded by uh, an African-American pastor named Dr. Anthony Gordon. Uh, who was one of the first African-Americans ordained in the PCA church. And uh, he planted a church on the east side of Birmingham back in the mid-80s and was just hopeful to be a gospel presence in what was that at that time a pretty tough neighborhood with uh, a lot of uh, gangs and drugs and uh, just kind of infestation of, of hopelessness. 
And uh, in 86, he had to officiate the funerals of five different young men that were killed due to gang and drug violence. And so he began kind of wrestling with this reality that he was spending more time uh, burying some of his youth than discipling them. And so mm. really began to wrestle with God and kind of what does this mean? I've already planted a church in a neighborhood that a lot of people don't really want to uh, hang out in. And, and it doesn't seem to be a lot of progress. And, and he really felt like the Lord was impressing upon him just the, the reality of, look, you know, even if you get these kids to come Sunday morning and come to a weekday evening service, that's four to six hours a week. Uh, the rest of the time they're being discipled and apprenticed by a lot of the community forces that are dragging them into this, into some of this decision-making. And uh, he said, you know, if you, you really like the Lord said, if you start a school, you're going to get those kids for 30 to 40 hours a week. And there's just more time for positive impact and discipleship. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the second thing that's really stuck with me is he just said, as he was looking around Birmingham, he was really, perplexed and maybe even indignant in some respects that thousands of kids in the city had access to amazing public schools, uh, private Christian school options, homeschool co-ops, etc. And meanwhile, thousands of kids in his neighborhood just did not even have that option. Um, and even if they did, the majority of them could not afford it. And he, he really felt like that just was an injustice, uh, that every single kid should at least have access to those options. Uh, it should not just be something for the affluent. Um, and so that that uh, that stuck with me. And he just said he felt like a good bit of the church and the body of Christ was aware of this disparity, but kind of just shrugged and said that's just kind of how it is um, and, and just kind of moved on. And so instead of just complaining about it, he just used kind of the raggedy wing of his church at that time and opened the doors to his school in 88. and. Uh, about 69 high school boys showed up for school that first August, and that was not his strategic plan, but um, that's what God brought in. And so today we've got about 320 students, kindergarten through 12th grade, and um, for the last 12 years in a row, 100% of our seniors have been admitted to college, and um, just God wow. doing some really transformative work in and through these students. Uh, they're, they're amazing, amazing kids, and uh yeah, just trying to provide a place where they're safe, they're loved, they're receiving a quality education, and um, and look forward to coming to school each day. So my quick backstory is I went to Wheaton College and got involved mm-hmm. in a basketball ministry in, at the Cook County Juvenile Jail uh, my sophomore year. Every Saturday we would drive down from the suburbs of Wheaton and go to this juvenile facility and coach basketball teams and then just share the gospel at the end. And just saw a lot of really amazing things happen uh, in these young men's lives in this juvenile facility. But I was also just really leveled with just the realities of stuff that I had really been insulated from for most of my life. Um, 30,000 kids went through that facility every year, ages 12 to 17. And um, just heartbreaking stuff with some of these young men. Um, some of them were going to be locked up for a long, long time for the things that they had done. And so... Um, God really put me in a headlock at that point. I was a history major, and there's not a whole lot you can do with that other than teach or work at a library or something. And so I uh, mm-hmm. I decided that, uh, that I did want to go into education. And so when I heard about Restoration Academy, it was kind of a no-brainer. It was bringing me back home to Birmingham. Um, and after interviewing there, yeah, the Lord just really gripped me to say, this is what I want you to do. And so uh, I was hired to teach history and Bible 18 years ago. and I've served in the administration for several years, and now I'm serving as the executive director of the school. Wow, that's so cool to just hear how 
your passions really came about through different experiences and it's been channeled into your career. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I think you guys, you know, I've talked with uh, your dad and with Brad Jones and just hearing how you have really made a large portion of your life just living out the call to justice and reconciliation and and stepping into the gap of, of being someone who, <clears throat> like you like you've shared and a little bit about how we've heard from your dad, just kind of having those connections in some of the wealthier white suburban areas, but then stepping into um, an environment like you talked about where um, lower or lower income areas um, and just, just a lot of the poverty and, and lack of opportunity and racism and just different challenges in America. And so I'm, I'm just really thankful that we have people like you and, and people that really encourage me. I think, yeah, I, I'm just really encouraged by it. I have a, I have a friend of mine who teaches in inner city Memphis and I've always, I love talking with her and I love asking her the question, why urban education? Why has this been something that you've really felt a passion about? What is unique about urban education and the opportunity that you see? So that, throwing that same question at me. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Um, well, I think I think it's it's just it's an amazing opportunity to take uh, students, like I said, kind of Dr. Gordon's original vision, and just saying, look, uh, this, these are these are students like any other students with the same abilities, the exact same talents, um, the exact same desires. I think to learn, uh, and many of them, thousands upon thousands of them, have been relegated to a system um, that is, is failing them. And I'm not bashing all city schools. I think there's some great city schools, great city school teachers, great city school administrators, but my neighborhood is surrounded by failing schools. And in order to be a failing school in Alabama, that means you have to be in the bottom 6% of performance in the entire state. So you can imagine how bad that is. And thousands of kids are impacted by that. And so I think that, uh, you know, we, we hear it as a cliche, but education is so important for success, for career, for life, for hope, for the ability mm-hmm. to um, circumnavigate um, the future. And so when um, when you're in an environment where there's an intense amount of poverty, uh, they're, they're doing studies now that children starting at the age of four who are growing up in impoverished communities are, are entering into an educational vacuum that they'll be forever behind their middle class and upper class peers. So it's, it's almost irrecoverable. Um, and so, you know, I really think that for those of us that are within the body of Christ, this is an area that we need to address at a systemic level. Um, one, I think schools like Restoration Academy, there needs to be more of them. Um, but I also think that Christ followers need to be invading the city schools and the public schools to, to help, mm-hmm. to assist, to engage, um, and to to pr- try to bring hope and life and, and value to those systems as well. So um, I, I think it's a huge, huge uh, struggle point within our country, and depending on where you grew up, if you grew up in a middle class or upper class uh, community like I did, it's out of sight, out of mind. Um, but right. it's, it's probably 10 miles down the road from your house, uh, 15 miles, and you're just really not aware. Um, or you're just, if you are aware, you're just kind of told, don't go to that neighborhood. That neighborhood is right. a place you want to stay away from. Um, so I hope that right. answers the question, at least in part. Um, I went to 
high school in the town where Penn State is, so a university-centered town. So education is very highly valued, and so the school dis- district is very, very good. And I did a like, pre-practicum experience my freshman year in the Philadelphia School District, and it just rocked me every single day whenever I went in because of how different the experience was. And just to think of if I had never gone, if I had never had access to that school or engaged with it, I wouldn't have that kind of understanding of what it's like. And so I'm thankful for you being able to share so that knowing about these kinds of things can be accessible to our peers here at Penn State as well. Um, Yeah. I also wanted to ask, how have you seen the impact of Restoration Academy in your community? Well, I think the the city that we're living in right now is actually, um, it's a neighboring city just outside of Birmingham called Fairfield. And right now the city is on the verge of bankruptcy. It's, it's burned out houses are, are are littered everywhere. Um, it's an under-resourced police department, fire department. Um, and, and I think that restoration by God's grace is one of those kind of cornerstones being in this neighborhood as long as it's been, that's, a bright spot of hope for, for people in the community. So it's, you know, it's not a, we're we're small compared to the local public school, um, but more and more families are pouring in that are excited and desperate at the same time for an alternative for their kids. Um, And so on one hand, I think it's a, it's a safe haven for as many students as we can bring in. We're we're trying to grow. Uh, We've doubled kindergarten through third grade and we're going to double two more elementary classes next year just because we want to end our waiting lists of turning away children who want to be here. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think on the other side of it is that, as I mentioned, you know, students are going to college, and I don't think college is for everybody. I think um, though those kids are admitted, many of them go on to serve our country in armed forces or go on to trade school. Um, Mm -hmm. But many of them are coming back as to serve on our junior board. Um, Some of them are coming to work as summer interns in our summer program because they're education majors and are coming back to pour into our own students and have just a real view of saying it's not just up and out of my community, but it's up and then back in to be impact players in in the community that raised me. So, I think that's really where you begin to see um, the fruit of the labor is when students uh, emerge from the school, go on to college or career, and then come back around to either support the ministry financially or through volunteerism or just through even uh, providing leadership on our our junior board level. So that's where I really think you see the community um, impacting itself, so to speak, through through the matrix of the school. Wow, that's awesome. And you talk about your community and restoration being a real bright spot there. How is it important for you as a white man to live in the neighborhood in which you serve? Yeah. Well, for me and my wife and our kids, it's been an absolute blessing. I mean, I think early on and even today sometimes it's kind of you get kind of these attaboys and, wow, that's great you're doing that. And and I I think people mean well, but it comes across almost kind of patronizing, like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, you know, I just, I don't, I don't care for that. I, I really feel like at the end of the day, um, my wife and I and our kids have been the, the ultimate beneficiaries of living in this neighborhood. One, just from the amazing lives of our neighbors, uh, the people around us, the, the enriched relationships that we've had for living here 17 years. Um, our, our children have grown up with uh, the house right next to us with their four boys. All of them are at restoration. Three of my four are at restoration. 
um, that cross pollinization and that iron sharpening iron is just absolutely dynamic. Um, I my my wife grew up in the mission field. She's a daughter of missionaries, so she grew up in the Philippines. So she's used to kind of being the, the in the in the minority culture within that community. And um, so being here, she she had more experience just kind of being being used to being that. But um, I think that it's um, it's so important that we we realize that you know these we're not going to grow much unless we're living in diversity. Um, we all mm-hmm. tend to flock together with our own kind and people. And at the end of the day, you're just kind of rubbing shoulders with people that, for the most part, like what you like, see things the way you see things, do things that you like to do. And that can feel life-giving, but it's life-stifling over time. Um, I, I really think that uh, living in a community like this has been so transformative for me. I've been undone over and over and over again. Um I do think within the, the, the culture of the school, um, the students have appreciated us living in the neighborhood. It's not a up and out, like, hey, we live over here and we drive 20 minutes to get there and then out. Some of our staff do that, and that's fine. I think God calls us, hopefully, to each neighborhood that we live in. But um, it's been wonderful that they're not just students, but they're in our homes. We're breaking bread together. Um, we're playing in the backyard. Alumni come over, and we hang out and catch up. And so those are those are lifelong relationships, and um, having people in your home is I think where and being in their homes is where life is really really shared. And so um, yeah, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful. And honestly, we've lived over here so long, we we typically now feel out of place when we're in the neighborhoods where I came from. Uh, I feel more out of pocket there now. Um, I love getting home. So. Um, that God has really used that for powerful ways for, for our family. That's really cool to hear about. You mentioned coming undone over and over again. What does that look like spiritually? Um, yeah, so I think the first few years that I came to Restoration, um, I think there was um, a bit of a hero-savior complex that came in. Kind of, I have this college degree. I love Jesus. I'm going to kind of come and serve an underserved neighborhood mm-hmm. um you get kind of used to the uh that what we do on a lot of our short-term mission trips just photo shoots of you doing different things with kids and people that from your original community are kind of affirming and proud of you and this and that mm-hmm. um i think at the end of the day like i said i i think community is community it's not a it, there's nothing noble about doing what we do this is just living amongst uh, fellow image bearers and sharing life with them. And so uh, I do think that in, when we talk about calling, um, we sometimes are so interested in what God is going to do through us, but I think his chief aim is uh, what he wants to do to us, and that's to conform us into the image of his son. And so mm-hmm. I think the, this ministry that we've been a part of uh, now, uh, I really feel like the main reason I've been here as long as I've been is for me. Uh, it's for my family. It's we've kind of, we've emerged as the ultimate beneficiaries of that. So I, I think the Lord helped in his mercy and kindness kind of pull a 180 on that uh, for me and to say, yeah, I'm going to do some things through you, but don't for, don't for a moment think it's because of anything special you yeah. bring here. And being in this ministry context, I'm going to do a lot to you um, through these amazing people, these students, these colleagues that uh, I've blessed you with. Mm-hmm. Wow. That really hits home with me. I think that's something as I think about the prospect of um, 
urban ministry in, I'm moving to D.C. in the fall, and as I process where the Lord could lead me in ministry, I, I think it's very easy to fall into that very mentality, like you said, like, oh, I'm a, you know, Big Ten educated, you know, student, come from a good background, I know what the world needs, I know its problems, right, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to solve it, right, and so I just really appreciated how you talk about just how the how God did a work in your heart as much as how as much as he has used you to impact others lives and yeah I just think that is so cool and that you didn't really see that coming but that he worked through that anyways yeah yeah so one last question for I know you're a busy man and have a lot going on and um I read your article recently um well it was it wasn't necessarily recently but in the past year about um, Lifeway's decision to pull Shobaraka's album and I read your article in The Witness and, and really just appreciated your thoughts and so you kind of have this unique um, place in that you work and live in uh, predominantly African American community but yet you have a background from growing up in suburban white um, Christianity in America we'll say. What do you see as some of the greatest challenges in stepping into the gap that you currently see in America? Like what, what is a really big challenge or discouragement to you as you kind of sit in this tension of these two worlds? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. So, I mean, I, I think the initial thing that comes to mind, um, there's, there's several ways to answer it. I know we're probably running out of time, but I think it's just, I'm going to kind of broad brush with this, but I think that the, the majority of, of majority culture, white majority culture has done a, and within the body of Christ as well, has done a pretty poor job of, of just taking on the posture of listening and lamenting. Um, I, I think we we're, we're so quick to talk, to give opinions, rationalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just don't like it when things get uncomfortable. We don't like it if there's um, some conviction that begins to settle in. And we flee that or we try to kind of push it back, push it down with our own rhetoric. And so um, I, I think that um, it's a huge, huge topic in and of itself of kind of how do we how do we build those bridges. But I, I really think it would start with just more listening, um, listening to the, the, the anger, the frustration, the pain, sponging some of that up for a while. And just like James exhorts us being quicker to listen, slower to speak, and slower to emote on our end. Um, I, you know, I love that scene um, when, when Jesus raises up Lazarus. Before he does that, he lets Mary and Martha just rip him a new one. I mean, they are so angry. Uh, and he just takes it, you know, and he knows he's about to, to do something that none of us could do, and that's to bring a man back from the dead. But he takes the time not only to listen, but then he weeps, too. He He grieves, and he... He cries even again before he turns all of their tears into to laughter. And I think we just want to bypass that. We want to get to fixing things. We want to get to trying to build bridges. We don't want to go through that process of listening and lamenting. And I, you know, with Show's album, I, you know, I felt like it was it's a phenomenal album. It touches on some really uncomfortable topics. But I'm like, man, we need this. <laughs> and, Everybody has yeah. a choice to buy buy an album or not buy an album. You know, if you don't want it, don't buy it. But you should. It's a great album. So, um, but again, I think that was one of those things where a message um, that was so powerful was not really given an opportunity, at least by that particular franchise, to to shine out. And you know, um, 
thankfully I was able to connect with their uh, CEO and exchange some emails and dialogue a little bit further about it. But, um, you know, that's, I really think that's important. I really think is for us as individuals, but as a, as a culture, do I take time to lament? Do I take time to really listen? Uh, or am I so quick to just fall into my knee jerk default modes and defensive nature or just throw back all the rhetoric that I have kind of stirring inside of me? And um, that kind of gets back to the book. I mean, I really wanted Jim in particular in that book to hear Malik, even if he didn't like everything he had to say, um, to take time because he had to. He was forced to listen in that book, whether he wanted to or not. And so mm. we we need a lot more of that. Mm. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great way to kind of conclude our podcast. Yeah, Just awesome. kind of this, like, go forth and go do this. Go be quick to listen so to speak and Ben I just want to thank you so much for being a part of our podcast and our mission to just hear from all kinds of people and we thank you for your perspective and your wisdom yeah well thank you guys appreciate you you guys carry on the good work there at Penn State (laughs) thank you yeah thank you so much we just really really appreciate it all right well blessings on you guys (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.